So our text for today is Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 31. We're making our way through the book of Luke, coming down uh, to the last moments, to the last two chapters here in the book of Luke. Um, As we consider what it is that we have recently seen through the book of Luke, we have uh, seen over the past couple weeks just some of the darkest and most terrible times throughout the entire book. Uh, and throughout the life of Jesus, and frankly, throughout human history. We've seen Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane that night when he spent the night in agony, praying, sweating drops of blood, and ultimately, at the end of that, was arrested, betrayed by one of his own disciples. We see, uh, soon after that, a few weeks ago, the abandonment by all of his disciples, Not only did they all flee, leave him, but it got worse than that when uh, his most dearest disciple, Peter, even denied him three times. Then we see Jesus, as he endures his Jewish trials, you'll remember we put those, uh, the word trial in air quotes, uh, because indeed it was no actual trial, but it was a sham, it was a, a fraud, it was a lie, the entire thing was a mock trial, just in order to condemn Jesus on the basis of lies in order to have him killed. And then last week we saw Jesus as he went through sort of his civil trials as he was presented before Pilate and Herod. The Jewish people brought him to them in order to get a condemnation and ultimately uh, a verdict of guilty and condemnation of death. And you remember from last week that uh, Pilate and Herod both concluded This man is not guilty, and yet, what happened? Pilate conceded to the will of the people, abdicated, and ultimately turned Jesus over and sentenced him to be crucified at the hands of this mob. We find now Jesus, having been wrongfully condemned, having been betrayed, mocked, sentenced to death, and now on the road to the cross And we see this in our text today, starting in verse 26, and we're going to read through verse 31. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. For they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, We have very little uh, to say before this uh, text other than that we desperately need your help, that we desperately need you to help us. Lord, as we read your word, as we study it, and Lord, as I stand here before you to preach the word, I pray that you would guide us in our understanding, that you would guide us in the truth, that we would see your gospel in the life of Jesus portrayed here through this word that you have delivered to us by the Holy Spirit through the writer Luke, we ask, Lord, today that you would guide us in all truth and all godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So as I said, we find Jesus here in our text setting down the road to the cross, this very long, this very rough, this very sad road. But really, Jesus began his road to the cross the moment he took on human flesh, did he not? His whole life really has been leading to this moment. Jesus' whole life, he has been on the road to the cross, for indeed, that is the reason he came into the world. He came into the world not merely to live a good life, not merely to teach some good things, though he did both of those things, but ultimately we know that Jesus Christ entered into this world with the cross in mind, with the cross on the horizon from the moment he took on flesh. This was Jesus' end goal, was the cross. So really all that we have now is we have the last short leg of the journey that Jesus has been on his entire life. The road that Jesus was on now between the time of his trial to the place where he would be crucified, frankly, was not very long of a road. It was not very far of a road. At least there was not that much distance between the place where Jesus was in Jerusalem to uh, the place where Jesus was most likely crucified. It was not that far outside of the city. And yet, the way the Romans would, would do this portion of their execution was that they would not simply take the fastest road, get them out there as quick as they could, and execute this person. No, what they would do with criminals was they would take every opportunity they could to make an example of these men. And so they would take the longest road, the road most heavily traveled, the busiest places, the busiest part of town that they could go through. They would take that path, even though it took much longer, to get to the place where the person will be crucified. They did this so that this person would serve as an example. And they would carry before the person a plaque, a, a board stating what it was that their crime was. And we know that the board that was carried before Jesus and ultimately nailed to the cross above him said, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. This was his crime, which we recognize was no crime at all, but was in fact the truth. But Jesus has led down this road of shame, this road of sorrow. And in the midst of this time, as Jesus is walking along this road in anguish and sorrow, Jesus take, or excuse me, Luke takes this time to show us some interactions that Jesus has on his journey out of the city into the place where he would die, the place called the place of the skull or Golgotha. We see really what this is, as my title would indicate, that this, for us in Luke, is a snapshot from death row. That Jesus is right now, having been, been tried, having been convicted, though wrongfully so, and sentenced to crucifixion, was now on death row, short as it may have been, he was on his way to death. And yet it is in, it is in this time that we see these amazing situations, these amazing things, these amazing encounters that Jesus has with people along the way. And we're going to look at two of them specifically. First of all, which is point number one, we see grace extended to the insignificant. This comes from verse 26, where we see in our text, as they led him away, Luke says, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. This is a fascinating entrance into the story. This is a fascinating kind of inclusion that 
all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include into their account of Jesus' crucifixion that there was this man named Simon who along the way, while Jesus was carrying his cross, the Roman soldiers compelled him or pressed him. In other words, they forced him, drafted him into this service to carry the cross for Jesus. Now, the text doesn't tell us why it is that they put this on him, that they took it from Jesus and put it on this man, Simon. But we can assume from what we know about these Roman executions that it was probably because Jesus was unable to carry the cross, or at least unable to do it at a speed that the Roman soldiers would like. Because Jesus at this time would have already been incredibly, incredibly weak. For this process of execution, this process of crucifixion that the Romans would do to to criminals did not start when they were nailed on the cross. It did not even start when they were forced to carry their cross to the place where they were to be executed, but it started with a severe and terrible flogging. A flogging with a whip that was braided with pieces of bone and clay and sharp, jagged objects so that as the Roman soldiers would whip these criminals, they were specifically designed to tear the flesh, to rip the flesh off of the bone and apart from the body. So that it has been said in, in histor- by historians that this process of flogging would oftentimes leave entrails and insides of body exposed to the elements. In fact, many men would die before they ever got to the point of carrying the cross because they would die from these scourgings from these beatings these whippings that they would give them but here we see Jesus having been whipped brutally beaten almost to the point of death and now forced to carry the cross as unable to do so so this man this man named Simon is included into the story of Christ's journey to the cross the place where he was to be crucified this man is a very interesting addition to the story And it's an inclusion, an addition of the story that ought to lead us to ask the question, why? Why is this man, Simon, who is briefly mentioned in all three of the Gospels in which he's mentioned, there is very little described about him other than a few short things. There's really only a handful of details were given. We know, by all accounts, this man was a random stranger, a passerby who was just forced at random to carry Jesus' cross. But if you know anything about the sovereignty of God, you know that there's really nothing that happens at random. There's really nothing that is happenstance that is is, uh, at random. We know a few things about this man. We know that he was from a town called Cyrene, the text tells us. We know also from the book of Mark that he was literally just passing by, that he was not a part of this event. In fact, it was reason, it's reasonable for us to assume that he had no idea that this was taking place. Likely, this man was coming into, into Jerusalem for the Passover, coming to celebrate the Passover. And along his road, because they would take the busy roads, right, he was drafted into this service. So we know that he was a passerby, not a part of the crowd, not uh, intended to be there. And we also know from Mark's account another interesting detail that Mark adds. Mark says that this man, Simon of Cyrene, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. In a lot of ways, frankly, from the the few details that were given in Luke, we're kind of left with more questions than we are answers. Who is this guy? What is Cyrene and where is it? 
Who are Alexander and Rufus? And frankly, why does any of this matter? Why is it added to the story? Because if we just read Luke alone, it really adds nothing to the story for us, does it? It makes no difference for us to know the name of this guy. They could have said they compelled some random guy along the way to carry the cross. And we would think, well, all right, no difference to us. Just reading the book of Luke, at least it might seem that way. But this is where I want us to consider for a moment why it was that these details of this man, Simon, are included in the story. And this is where some historical context will help us. Because we know a few things from the story. We, we know that Cyrene was a town where there was uh, a Jewish synagogue established. We also know that after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, that a church was established in Cyrene very early on. That it was a place where Christianity spread to and grew early. And we know even beyond that, that it was from the church in Cyrene, we know from church history, that the church at Antioch was planted that the church grew at Cyrene and ultimately from there expanded out and, and missionaries were sent and the church at Antioch was planted. So there are some interesting things that we do know about Cyrene and it, it is the opinion of, of me, along with many scholars, that the simple fact that this man's name and especially the fact that his son's name are mentioned means that it is assumed by the writers that they would know who this man is. So it is safe to assume that this man was probably a believer. That from this instance where he helped Jesus carry the cross to the place where he'd be crucified and likely stuck around to see how this was all gonna unfold, ultimately came to faith in Jesus Christ, came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That this instance, which seemingly happened at random, served to, to bring this man to Christ. We know of the name Rufus, one of his sons that's mentioned, that name is actually mentioned somewhere else in Scripture. It's mentioned at the end of Romans when Paul is extending greetings. He says, greet Rufus and also his mother who has been like a mother to me. That is probably the reason Alexander and Rufus are mentioned because this man and his sons would have been known to the church because they became believers. They were part of the early church. So it's reasonable to expect that this man who was one of the early Christians came to know Christ after having bore his cross, seeing him crucified and risen again, would have become a leader at the church of Cyrene, would have helped to establish that church, which ultimately planted Antioch, which if you know, the church at Antioch was the church that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their missionary journey. So then, this is an amazing aspect of the story that it is conceivable to say, conceivable to, to think that without the compelling of Simon Peter to carry Jesus' cross, that there was no church planted in Antioch and there was ultimately no sending of Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. All of this because this guy named Simon was forced to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. I think the inclusion of this man into the story is intended for us to see the sovereignty of God at work that this seemingly haphazard random event led ultimately by God's sovereignty and his will and his providence to the sending out of Paul and Barnabas to plant churches, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, ultimately to us and for our benefit. We ought to see from this story God's sovereignty, his goodness, his grace. And this ought to come to our mind the next time we find ourselves wondering Lord, why on earth am I here? 
Why on earth do you have me at the workplace that you have me at? Why on earth do you have me living in the place where I'm living? Why am I in the circumstances I in? It's very easy for us as human beings to become discontent with where we're at. It's very easy for us to become upset about the circumstances that God has put us in. And I would wager this man, Simon, when he was compelled by these Roman soldiers, very likely was saying, why on earth did they pick me? Why am I the one that has to bear this burden, has to bear this cross for this guy? But ultimately, looking back, Simon of Cyrene can see God's sovereignty at work in his own life. And we can too. We can trust that nothing that we are doing in our life, no place that the Lord has us right here, right now, is an accident. It is not random. It is not coincidence. He has us in a specific place for a specific purpose. He always does. And I think also we need to see from this picture, we would be remiss if we did not point out and see the significance of the picture of this man, Simon of Cyrene, carrying the cross and following Jesus. For indeed, this is the picture for all Christians. All those who desire to follow Christ must take up their cross daily, as Jesus and Christ said, and follow him, just like Simon of Cyrene. Those who desire to follow Christ are called to humble themselves, to imitate Christ, to take up their cross the same as him and to follow him. There is great significance in this man, Simon, as we see grace extended to him. Though we might think at first glance that this is very insignificant, what we ought to see is God's grace even in the insignificant. Point number two that we see is Jesus' warning to the fakers and the frauds. In verse 27 through 29, we read this. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. This text tells us that there were women following Jesus, that there were women mourning and lamenting for him, for Jesus. And we might at first conclude, oh, this is Jesus' followers. These are the women who loved Jesus and followed Jesus and served Jesus, who are now here in this scene following him, mourning for Jesus, their rabbi, their savior, their teacher, mourning for him and for the loss of their Messiah. But that's not who these women were. It would be wrong of us To conclude this, because later on in our chapter here, in verse 49, what do we see? That all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance and watched these things. These were not Jesus' followers who were here lamenting and mourning. What is more likely the case is that these women were devout Jews, devout Jerusalem women, who, though kind-hearted and compassionate, were here mourning out of a sense of kindness, out of a sense almost of obligation, doing what they thought to be right. Certainly, they were mourning at the loss of life. They were mourning at the sadness of the death of these men who were to be crucified. They would have likely come out for all of the executions to mourn and to do what they saw to be their duty to lament for these who had died. But these women were not followers of Christ. They were not true believers. They were not Jesus' disciples in any way, but rather those who were there almost out of sense of kindness and compassion. Much like today, if someone is to be executed, 
It is considered to be a kindness to give them a certain amount of comfort, to give them an opportunity to say their last words and and to give them a a meal of their choice before they're ultimately executed. We consider that to be humane. We consider it to be a kindness, a grace, a, a sense of compassion and mercy upon them in the same way these women would have seen it as their duty to show mercy, to show grace, compassion to those who are about to be killed, but ultimately not followers of Christ. And in this wild turn of events, likely the first time this has ever happened to these women, these mourners, Jesus turns and begins to address them. And when I read the statement that Jesus makes to these mourners where he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, and then goes on to proclaim what it is, give them this warning of what is to come. What this makes me think of, it makes me think of whenever I was young and something that was kind of a favorite go-to phrase of my dad. Whenever uh, me and my siblings would be crying, usually for no reason, when we were just upset, whether we were tired or hungry, we were crying. My dad could not stand that. He hated it when we were just being fussy and whiny and crying. My dad had a saying, he would say, either stop the crying or I'm gonna give you a reason to cry. Is anyone else familiar with this phrase? Did anyone else hear this growing up? At least one or two other people. What my dad meant was not that he was going to tell me a sad story. He didn't mean we were going to watch uh, Because of When Dixie. He was saying that if you don't stop crying, I'm going to spank you, and then you're really going to have a reason to cry. In a very similar way, Jesus giving this warning to these women is telling them something similar. He's saying, You're crying for the wrong reasons. You're not cry- don't cry for me for what I'm about to go through. You ought to be crying for yourself for the judgment that is about to come on you, a judgment that is so severe. He says to them, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And Jewish customs for Jewish women in that day, it was considered to be a shame to be barren. It was it was a disgrace. It was a bad thing to have never had children, to have never born children, to have never been able to care for children. It was not something to be gloried in. I know in, uh, in, in our culture today, by and large, it's considered a virtue to be childless or it is in, in some way desirable to put off having children or to sometimes not have children altogether. Uh, I would make a case that that's not necessarily a good position uh, to, to take. Uh, for what the Lord has called a blessing, certainly the, the blessing of, of children and childbearing. But certainly for the case of these women, it was considered to be a, a sad and terrible thing to not be able to have children. And yet Jesus declares to them that the days are coming when things are gonna get so bad, when you're gonna be thankful that you didn't have kids so that you didn't have to see them go through this suffering, so that they didn't have to experience what you are gonna have to experience. How sad and terrible things would have to be in order to come to that conclusion. And this warning that Jesus gives, which is so chilling, so sobering, is not intended to be a warning simply to these women. Jesus addresses them using the term daughters of Jerusalem, but he's using that term in correlation with the way it was regularly used in the Old Testament, identifying not just women, not just these women here, not even just the women in Israel, but identifying all of Jerusalem by the term daughters of Jerusalem. It was a way of identifying identifying the whole of the nation that Jesus is speaking here. So we recognize that Jesus' proclamation, his warning is not just for these women, but for all of Jerusalem, for what is about to come. These women 
though in, in a sense, were frauds in, in that they did not actually love Jesus. They were not actually mourning for the loss of the Savior, for the death of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the real reason for mourning. But their lamenting was, in a sense, more of a show as they mourned. And frankly, it doesn't matter how much it looks like you love Jesus, much like these women. There are a lot of people that are really good at making it look like they love Jesus. They're good at saying the right words, doing the right things, being at church every Sunday. Maybe they even know their scripture. Yet all of it is a show. All of it serves to nothing. You earn no points by pretending that you love Christ, by weeping louder than others, or by serving harder than others. You earn no points if Jesus is not actually the object of your affection. This ought to serve as a warning for us that if Jesus is not our affection, then the same warning that is extended to these women, the daughters of Jerusalem, and ultimately to all of Israel is extended to us also. That the same wrath that is about to come will come for us if he is not truly the object of our affection. Point number three, judgment is predicted to all the unrighteous and the wicked. We see this finally in verse 30 and 31 where Jesus concludes and says, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Ultimately, this picture, this statement that Jesus Jesus gives is a statement, it is a proclamation, it is a warning of the coming wrath of God. We see almost an identical statement, very, very similar statement in only two other places in scripture. We see it from the prophet Hosea when he warns of the coming judgment of Christ, the coming wrath of God upon the people for their wickedness. And we see it later on in the book of Revelation, which we will see later. Many commentators put forward that this is a prediction of the coming judgment, the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70. And I think this may very well be something that Jesus is alluding to here. For we see uh, some, some scenes that would indicate that to us. I do think it's correct for us to see in the immediate context of this reference of Jesus that he probably does have in mind as a coming judgment, a coming wrath of God upon Israel, upon Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was about to be sacked and destroyed in just a mere 40 years Indeed, the siege against Jerusalem that we see in AD 70 fits the description that Jesus gives to these women. Jesus also predicted the fall of Jerusalem earlier on through his ministry. And we see that the the fall of Jerusalem was a terrible, horrible event in history, especially for the Jews, for the people in Jerusalem. It was a terrible, terrible scene. The historian Josephus, this Jewish historian who was actually there when it was Uh, when the siege took place, and he, uh, for a short time, served as a sort of mediary between uh, the Jews and the Romans, though he was unable to do much in that role. He categorizes, he he, uh, documents a lot of the atrocious things that happened in this scene. One thing we know uh, that he records, just somewhat, I'm just going to give you a few details just so you can see how gruesome this judgment was, was that uh, one thing that happened was the Jews in an attempt to save some of their money when they knew that Rome was about to invade and and they wanted to have, hopefully, if they survived this siege, this battle, 
to have something for them to live on, to have some sort of money, wealth, riches, something, that before the Romans invaded, they, would actually, they actually ate some of their coins, some of their gold and silver coins in order to, in an attempt to, de- to preserve a little bit of money, a little bit of something. But the problem was because they were all starving from this months-long siege, their bellies were empty and swelled up whenever they would eat these coins. And when it was discovered by some Roman soldiers that there was coins, that there was money inside these Jews, what happened after that was terrible, terrible in that, as you can imagine, in an attempt to find as much loot as they could, they would cut open the insides of the Jews that they killed, searching for money. In fact, Josephus records that there were even instances of men and women who ate their children out of desperation. As they were starving from months of this siege, of being cut off from supplies, unable to obtain food, that they resorted to these desperate measures, certainly it would have been better for them not to have had children, just as Jesus predicted. We see, this is a quote from Josephus. He says this of the finale of the siege, of the sacking of Jerusalem. He says, the partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was a slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. But, the altar, but around the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. This was a terrible, terrible picture of God's wrath, of the judgment that came upon Jerusalem for their wickedness, for their unbelief. Without a doubt, this was a horrible, horrible event for the Jewish people. And certainly it fits the prophecy that Jesus gives these women. However, I believe that there is more to this prophecy than simply what happened in the year 70 AD. I think there's a warning here for us today of a further and greater and worse coming wrath that is to come that God is going to pour out his wrath upon all the unrighteous and upon all the wicked, not simply these people in Jerusalem in the year AD 70. And I say this with good confidence because of the language that's used here. As I said, in Revelation, we see something very similar. In Revelation chapter six, when the sixth seal is opened and the wrath of God is released upon the earth, this is what we read from John in Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17. He says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? What we see described in the book of Revelation chapter 6 is a far greater coming wrath than even what was seen in Jerusalem. It's a far greater coming destruction and a far more permanent and a far more thorough cleansing by God's wrath to the point that the people say to the mountains, fall on us, to the rocks, hide us. But ultimately, there is no escaping. There is no hiding from the wrath of God. In fact, as they say, from the wrath of the lamb. This is fascinating language. Because when we consider the lamb, the lamb of God who was slain, what do we consider? 
We think of the grace. We think of the mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. We think of him as the lamb who was slain so that we can be forgiven, so that we can live eternally with God, our Father in heaven, in peace with him, that we might have justification, that we might be cleansed. And all of these things are true, but they are true only of those who have Christ as their true affection. And for all the rest, this is what is to come. For all the rest, there is left wrath. A wrath in front of which no one can stand and from which no one can hide. Jesus here, on this road to the cross, as he is speaking from death row, takes this opportunity not to offer kind words, not to offer good advice. He takes this opportunity to warn the people of God's coming wrath. Why? Because unless you understand the coming wrath of God, you have no idea of your need of a Savior. We need to see and understand God's wrath. We need to see and learn and study and recognize that the God who is so gracious and kind and merciful to save us is also a God of wrath who will not let wickedness go unpunished. He will not let the unrighteous stand, but ultimately will crush and will punish punish all of the unrighteous. Jesus gives this warning, and you notice, he does not add any offer of grace at the end of it. However, the offer is there. The offer stands for all of these Jewish people, for all of these women, for the Roman centurions, for the Jewish leaders, for all the nation of Israel, even for all of those today. As they read, as we understand the wrath of God that is to come, the offer of grace is there. Consider the story of Jonah. As he goes to the city of Nineveh, God sends him to Nineveh. We all know the the part about him when he was swallowed by the whale, when he uh, spent three days and nights there and then ultimately was spit back out. And he goes to Nineveh and proclaims the message that God has sent him to proclaim. And this is the message that Jonah proclaims to the city. He says, it says in Jonah 3, 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Period. That was the end of the word that Jonah gave to the Ninevites. It might seem that there is no hope. It might seem that they have nothing to do but to accept their fate and to die and to suffer God's wrath. But what do we see from the story of Jonah? The very next verse, after Jonah proclaims this, that in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown, Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 says, and the people believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And what was the end of their fate, at least in this story of Nineveh? They were spared. God showed him mercy. He showed them grace. He extended his compassion even to the people who he claimed he would destroy. The Lord relented of his wrath and spared them because they believed. They believed that God was a holy and a God of wrath and they believed that if they cried out to him that he might spare them and show them mercy. And the same thing that is true for Nineveh was true of the people in Jerusalem. And the same thing that's true of the people of Jerusalem is true for people today. That the wrath of God is real and the wrath of God is heavy and the wrath of God is severe and we ought to see it and understand it truly as what it is because it is the wrath of a holy and righteous and just God. It is not the wrath of an angry two-year-old who acts out out of his own selfishness and out of his own sin 
It is just, and it is holy, and it is righteous, and it is coming upon all of those who ultimately reject Christ as what he truly is, and that is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of the Jews. So my, my call for us here today is two things. It's twofold. Number one, if you are here in this place today, then you are either, like Simon, carrying your cross, following Jesus in humility, humbly serving him. You are submitting to his grace. He is your affection. Or the second option is that you are under God's wrath. But I would also encourage you that you do not have to stay in that place. If you are under God's wrath, that is not the place that you have to stay, that this is not the end of the story. Come back for the next few weeks and you will see that the story does not end with Jesus' threat of wrath. Though judgment will come upon all those who believe, today is the day of salvation. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, if you repent the same way the people of Nineveh repent, if you believe and trust that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do when he died on the cross, that wrath has been taken. It's been taken by him, the Lamb of God, slain for us, and you are covered and washed by his blood. And that you no longer have to worry about facing his wrath because you can rest in his grace. If you want to know more about what it means to rest in the grace of Christ, if you want to know what is required in order to avoid the wrath of God, please come and talk to me after the service. Come and talk to Robert. Come and talk to Aaron. Or find someone who you know that goes to church here or that knows Jesus Christ and ask them what it means to escape the wrath of God and how that is possible. I would encourage you in that today. And if you are here today and you are a believer, look at what you have escaped and praise God. It's not because of your own doing. It's only because of Christ, Christ's mercy, his work on the cross, his grace extended to us. Let's pray.